Hello and welcome to the first Podularity podcast of 2011. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest in this first programme is psychologist and animal behaviour expert Gay Bradshaw. Gay is director of the Kerylus Centre in Oregon, which promotes the understanding of animals as fully sentient beings and their ethical treatment, whether in human care, in conservation projects, or in the wild. It was the title of Gay's book which first drew it to my attention, Elephants on the Edge. It made me think at first it was going to be mainly about conservation, but in fact its scope goes far beyond that, and has implications not just for our treatment of elephants, but the whole of nature. The elephants she writes about are not just on the edge as a species under threat of extinction, they also find themselves on the edge psychologically as their numbers are culled and their habitats eroded. They're elephants on the edge of trauma. Recent neuroscience tells us that elephants' brains are a lot like our own, and that they are not unique in that respect. And observation in the field reveals elephant society to be rich and complex, to the point that they might be described as possessing a culture. That being so, Gay Bradshaw calls for a fundamental reappraisal of a relationship with the whole of the rest of nature, and recognition of the validity of such concepts as trauma, suffering and selfhood when applied to animals. Why tackle these questions through the example of the elephant? Well, as Gay Bradshaw writes in the book, it is difficult to think of any other species that evokes such contradictory behaviours and attitudes in humans throughout the history than the elephant. We have seen elephants worshipped, slaughtered, tortured, nurtured, admired, feared, hacked, rescued, studied, caressed, symbolised and eulogised. Her book shows that elephants lead us again and again to profound questions about humanity and nature and humanity in nature. Shortly before Christmas, I rang Gay in Oregon and asked her about how her own involvement with elephants had begun. I think it was sparked when I came to the realization that the kinds of work that I was engaged in and that a lot of scientists were engaged in conservation was really not getting at the root of the issue of what was going on with wildlife. And as I describe in my book, one sort of epiphany was when I was in Africa, South Africa, and first heard about these young bulls who were suspected at the time of killing rhinoceroses. I was also studying lions. Mm. And I had an encounter there, and I realized that really what was happening is that wildlife societies, elephants, lions, here in North America, the bears, bison, mm were essentially, their societies were essentially collapsing because of humanity. And the kind of conservation that was being crafted did not take into account animal emotions, animal sentience, and the very intricate fabric of what constitutes animal cultures in society. I mean, you talk a lot in the book about South Africa, and the position of elephants there, from your description, seems to be one really of of managed stock, of sort of semi-domesticated stock at best, yes. and at worst, um, as economic products, as, as commodities to be, to be harvested. Is, I mean, is that, a fair, is that a fair characterization of their yes, situation? Yes, it is. Um, yeah, I focus on South Africa because that was my immediate experience, and also because they have a very strong scientific effort there going on to assess the quote-unquote elephant situation. Mm. The, uh, in South Africa, Essentially, elephants are becoming domesticated. I mean, if you look at it, their uh, distribution is only in small parks and reserves. 
they are uh, being commodified, as you call, as you describe it. Mm. In elsewhere in Africa, the elephants are also suffering. It is, it's a little bit what we might call more chaotic. Again, their distribution is also very restricted. They are, however, being subjected more strongly to poaching mm. and uh, uh, being killed by soldiers where there's civil war. Overall, of Africa and in India, the elephant is really under siege. One of the the, the very significant messages that I took for your book, from your book is that the public at large has, and, and I guess until recently, the scientific community also, has seriously underestimated elephant society, elephant culture, elephant consciousness. And even, even those three terms, I suppose, to some people might be quite surprising when joined with the word elephant. They may not associate those, those characteristics with, with animals at all. Actually, ever since Darwin, there, or even before, there's been an understanding in Western science that animals have emotions and various lines of evidence that would support what we would call consciousness or sense of self and other attributes that we have considered to be uniquely human. So actually, the data, the information has been there for quite a long time. There have been some recent experiments and field sightings that have provided more substantial evidence also coming from the neurosciences that really demonstrate that animals are comparable to humans in terms of their mind and emotions. So really the phenomena is more of a willingness to accept. However, really what the impediment is in terms of both the scientific community and the public is the implications. If, Mm. as science shows and neuroscience shows and demonstrates, as well as ethology and psychology, mental and emotional comparability in humans and other animals, then we are put in an awkward ethical and legal situation because it implies that they be granted or not have withheld the same privileges that we have as a species. And you, you refer to us as progeny of Descartes, and I, I guess what you're talking about is the the ability to entertain this dualism and to see the animal kingdom in, in two different ways simultaneously. Yes, exactly. So again, if, if, we, if you look at the television, I mean, over the last oh, 10 years or so, television and the documentaries have shown more and more animal shows and also in terms of the intricacies of their culture, their emotions, their love, their grief, particularly with elephants and their family structure and processes. However, there's a disconnect. There's a, an appreciation, and I think that's one of the most important aspects of why people are attracted to elephants, is this incredible culture, is their capacity of intelligence and memory and bonding with each other. And yet, at the same time, that knowledge is not translated into action. That is to say, animals and elephants are still moved around the landscape. They're translocated. They are killed. They are kept in zoos and circuses, which we consider to be unethical for humans who exhibit the same kind of capacities that elephants do. I was fascinated today by the the case study in your book, which described the situation of an elephant which had undergone trauma and had subsequently been in captivity and the, the behaviors that she had displayed. And that case study was presented to a number of psychiatrists and psychologists without knowing it was an elephant. Perhaps you can say what what the results were and what, what that suggested to you. Well, the purpose of this exercise was to basically translate what we know neuropsychologically 
what we know neuroethologically, that is to say what we know about elephant brains, what we know about elephant psychology and behavior, and to say, okay, can we use the same kinds of methods of, of diagnosis that we would for someone, a human, in terms of uh, psychiatry and psychology? So I presented that anonymously in the sense of that this is a case study to a whole suite of different clinicians, as you said, psychiatrists, psychologists, and counselors, therapists, mm. and basically said, here are the symptoms, here is the case study. I used very neutral language in the sense of that would not reveal uh, any species. Nothing was biased. It, it held both for humans as well as for the animals. And I said, what would you diagnose this individual as having if he, you know, she was your, your client? And what kind of treatment would you prescribe? Hmm. And right down the line, uh, they basically said this, you know, individual, there were slightly variations, but basically they said she had PTSD or complex PTSD and prescribed a number of very intensive treatments that they would do for the same if the human had come from, say, a prison or had gone through some kind of serious, very sustained traumatic experience. And outside the world of, of that particular experiment, there are real-world therapeutic programs being undertaken with elephants dealing with the effect of, of trauma, particularly after events such as family groups sustaining culling and then, then, then being separated from the, um, from the family group and, and held in captivity. Yes, and, and a large part of the work uh, of my organization, uh, the Carullo Center, and our faculty is really integrating what we call integrating science, psychology, and sanctuary. So the idea is that we're integrating principles that are drawn from psychology and psychiatry and integrating them with the kinds of methods that are being used in sanctuary to heal elephants. Part of the reason for doing that is demonstrating that a lot of the work that individuals at the, the um, Sheldrick Trust in, in Nairobi and also at the Elephant Sanctuary, uh, Carol Buckley is a co-founder. A lot of the techniques that they're using or approaches in the way they design the sanctuaries and the way they support in terms of their own behavior, elephants in their healing, is very much like how a therapist would approach an individual who has gone through severe trauma. And do you encounter intellectual opposition to this? from the academic community or from, from wider society, this, this suggestion that what, what is applicable in cases of human trauma is equally applicable in cases of elephant trauma? Well, the reaction really is quite heterogeneous, as I, as I say. <laughs> Part of this is really not that new. I mean, it's mm. been around since Darwin. So in some sense, yes, there is resistance because it's over 150 years that now the scientific community is coming around and embracing the idea that animals have emotions. So it went underground for almost two centuries. You can think of it mm. that way. Um, in terms of my own work with the elephant, it's mixed. For a lot of people, it resonates, uh, mm. particularly people in psychiatry and psychology. Other individuals react very much against it. And again, I think the reaction against it is there's a lot at stake mm. uh, as a society. And there's a lot at stake for our Western, modern, Cartesian culture. Because what we're basically saying with elephants having PTSD and other animals like the chimpanzee studies that I've I worked on and parrots is basically, as I said earlier, saying, well, they're comparable to humans. And that means that we um, ethically are compelled to change our laws and the assumptions that um, allow animals to be exploited and suffer such trauma. 
So, I mean, I suppose what, you, what you're arguing for, really, in essence, is yes. an expansion of our, our idea of moral community, isn't it? Yes, and I, what I'm arguing is saying that we use science um, as our a, a collective accepted uh, episteme, our knowledge system, hmm. and I say that we are ethically you know, compelled to translate that knowledge into action, that is to say, ethics. Otherwise, I think that uh, science is undermined, its integrity is undermined if we have this knowledge and yet we are unwilling to apply its implications for particular special interests that we might have as Mm. a species. Apart from the work that you're doing and the book that you've written, how do you think ideas such as these can be put across in the wider community? Because one of the ideas that I got from your book is that zoos, although claims are often made that they're a, a great educator, a great way to, to, to sort of sensitize people to the issues. One of the ideas in the book is that that, that in fact isn't true, that they, they, they function for entertainment for the visitor and profit for the owners, but in fact they don't really do a very good job. So by what means do you think we can sort of expand our notion of moral community? Well, I, I mean, what, what, what I'm doing and what my colleagues are doing in our organization is that we have various kinds of, you know, publications and education initiatives and things like that 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 help spread the word. We publish in different kinds of venues and have, like I said, education um, Mm. opportunities for children. And I think that's one way to get the word out in that way. I think that it resonates, the, the, the ideas resonates with the public, with a lot of people's personal experience with their companion animals, mm. with their experiences that they've had as children. So how to get the word out, that's how to get the word out. Mm. However, there's a lot of resistance. Again, the, you know, the science is there, the evidence is there. It just really takes, I think, every individual making that kind of commitment. And I think that's really important. I think mm. it's critical, I think, that a lot of the issues that we're facing as a species right now on the planet uh, has to do with the denial. And by embracing this understanding, I think there will be a, a radical change, obviously, that will start us on a new healing path that will benefit the animals, which I think is absolutely critical. Otherwise, we're going to lose the elephant and all the other wildlife, as well as ourselves. So when we're really embracing the concept that elephants have consciousness, that they're comparable to us mentally and emotionally, and other animals are, what we're really doing is really returning back to the garden in a sense. You know, we're Mm. recognizing our own family. And that, I think, is the key to moving us out of this crisis, a social and ecological crisis. It seems astonishing to me that at one and the same time, the elephant can be categorized as near-threatened, and at the same time, culling can be seriously envisaged as a, in quotes, solution to the, the human elephant encounter problem. Yeah, well, our modern society is very good at dissociating and compartmentalize. So we can look at this information and at the same time, the left hand is doing something and the right hand is doing something. I would say that what holds for the elephants holds for all of the animals that are in our lives, rabbits, cats, chickens dogs, goats, pigs, parrots. And so when we make a change in terms of how we are treating other animals, we are really helping the elephant in that way. Mm. And we are making that radical cultural change that we need to do. So this is a big psychological, perceptual, and cultural change that will affect our relationships to each other in the long run in a very positive way. 
but we're really talking about deconstructing what we call civilization. Mm. Again, a lot of the things that I've written about, I write from the scientific perspective, but these are understandings that uh, traditional indigenous people have embraced for, for millennia. So really we're talking about sort of a, uh, when we talk about the human-elephant conflict, we're really talking about sort of quote-unquote conflict between two epistemes, two knowledge systems, two political systems as such. Mm-hmm. That's really what's going on, and that is really what needs to be resolved. I mean, I, I wondered for you personally, if you could have written this book, if you had perhaps started out in ethology and simply studied that throughout the whole of your career, or if you would be sort of institutionally invested in a way which would make it difficult for you to, to see the much bigger paradigm that you argue for in, in, in this book? Yeah, I mean, I can answer in two ways. One, I think that was intuitively why I never went into those fields. Mm. My connection with other species has always been very close and intimate. I think at sort of an unconscious level, I resisted and was sort of repulsed <laughs> by mm. implicit ob- objectification in those fields of zoology, ethology, etc., And when you talk to a lot of students, contact me and young professionals, that's one of the things that bothers them very much is they feel that they are not able to continue sort of on a quote-unquote successful professional trajectory Mm. in the field of ethology, zoology, even conservation if they follow this whole idea that animals have emotions and that, that there's more of a holistic approach. It's starting to change, but relative to the body of knowledge that we have, very little is being done in terms of translating this into research and, well, I would say on the ground conservation and education for, hmm. for students. Let me ask you one final question, Gay, which is this. Are you pleased by the, the reaction the book has provoked so far? Well, yes and no. I mean, I guess I had the, I, I mean, you know, <laughs> I guess pleased would be saying that there would be a unanimous, <laughs> you hmm. know, or a consensus from the scientific hmm. community and a very outspoken uh, censoring of culls, the very, you know, very much activism within the scientific and academic community that would embrace changes legally and ethically for the treatment of other species that mm. we know comparable things. For example, chimpanzees. Here in the United States, there were are a number, almost 200 chimpanzees who were biomedical subjects. They were retired, and now there's a move to bring them back into research, despite the detailed knowledge of our quote-unquote closest relatives. Mm. So pleased, I guess, would me to see those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, you know, pleased in the sense of, yes, the reception has been very good, it has been, you know, people have said it's inspired them. I, I find that very rewarding. But frankly, relative to the issues at hand, it is very disappointing. It's not just my work. There's a huge, 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 this is the tip of the iceberg, mm. incredible body, a corpus of science and other studies that demonstrate. And where we're at right now, and this is what I appeal, I appeal to the scientific, the academic community to step out and to actually speak out and compel and inspire society and politicians to make the legal changes that will have an effect to stop the suffering in animals' lives. Gay Bradshaw. Elephants on the Edge is available now in paperback from Yale University Press. It was certainly one of the most thought-provoking books I read last year, and one I know I shall want to return to. That's all for this edition of Podularity, but I'll be back soon with another programme. Until then, there are many episodes to explore on the website at podularity.com, and you can also subscribe to the podcast free by going to iTunes and typing Podularity into the search box. For now, though, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.